Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. I bring greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist Church down in the district. I have spoken with a couple other preachers from there who have been with you in the past, and they told me in advance that I was in for quite a treat this morning just to get to be with you all. And in the time that we've already spent in worship, that has certainly been true. So I want to say thank you. Thank you for having me. I am so grateful to get to be with you. And I certainly pray that this would be an effective time for all of us sitting under the weight of God's word, being illumined by his spirit for our sanctification and perseverance. I would like to uh, begin our time with prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll kick off in this text. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us, your people, through Christ. Thank you for making us your own. Though we were rebels against you, you have found us with your grace, expressed and made effective through Christ our Lord, who lived and died and rose and ascended in order to be our surety. So we come now before you to worship, to sit under the weight of your word, to learn and to grow. We press our face towards the glorious truths that you present to us there. And we ask that in a time like this, that you might do a work in each one of us for our joy and for your glory. May the corporate witness of this church, encouraged through this Lord's day, Be the gospel and the gospel alone. May this community grow curious and be made further aware of the good news that this church has found in Christ Jesus. I pray now that you would help me, that you'd help each one of us to listen well, to read well, to consider well the things which you have said to us. We pray for your help. We ask that you would do this for our sake and for the sake of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Before I moved to Washington, D.C. with my wife, I worked as a professional landscape photographer. Some people, when I say that, immediately have in their minds that I spent my days with garden gnomes and people's backyards taking pictures of flowers. And while that sounds fun... That's not quite what I mean when I say that I worked as a landscape photographer. I would go to places like Italy and Iceland and Hawaii, Patagonia, and take professional landscape images that I would then sell in a studio to private collectors. And also instruct other photographers to be good landscape shooters. This is what I did. I traveled around, and and it was a lot of fun. I saw... Uh, a lot of amazing places. One of the places that I aimed to get to for some time that took me years to get to was Yosemite Valley in California. I don't know if any of you have ever been there before, but Yosemite was made famous from an American landscape, landscape photographer named Ansel Adams. In fact, if you go to Yosemite, there's a museum there that gives credit to all the amazing work that Ansel did in that valley. 
Now, I carry all my gear in a bag and complain when that bag gets a little too heavy. There are pictures of Ansel trekking through Yosemite Valley with multiple donkeys and a whole crew of people just to haul the equipment for one camera to make one photograph, black and white, which he would then take down the valley to his studio and develop in a dark room. And other shooters would come there, and every once in a while, he would, he would allow them to look through a, a collection of photographs that he did not deem worthy of being sold, and he would give them. Now a lot of those photographs are collectors in their own right. Knowing Ansel's story and being a landscape photographer myself, I dreamed of going to Yosemite Valley. I anticipated the time when my travels would take me there. And in 2020, because the pandemic and we weren't able to travel for the business outside of the United States, it seemed like a perfect time. So I went to Yosemite Valley and I drove to a place at the top of the valley called Inspiration Point. Very famous photograph. If you, if you Google Yosemite Valley, this will probably be the photograph of the valley that you see. And when I, when I got up to that particular point and went to the end where you could look out over the valley, I had tears in my eyes. It was so beautiful. I found myself praising God for carving such an amazing place with the power of his spoken word. It seemed that everywhere I looked, there was a testimony to the glory of God that made this place. And as I was sitting there taking the view in and just thinking on what God has done in the world to create it and sustain it by the power of his word, I was led to praise him. This morning, I want you to have that image in your mind, looking out over something glorious, a valley. But this morning, instead of calling it Yosemite Valley, we're going to call it the Valley of Justification by Faith. That's what we aim to ponder and to consider as a congregation this morning. Now, for the first four chapters of the book that we are in, our passage being situated in chapter 5, Paul has been making an argument for the details and the ways about which God has justified sinners. Chapters 1 through 2, he's made it perfectly clear that both Gentiles and Jews stand guilty before a holy God because of their rebellion. Gentiles are no more or no less guilty than Jews, and Jews no more or less than Gentiles, both in their own right, have sinned against a God to whom they are accountable. Chapter 3 makes it clear That Christ has been sent and was crushed under the wrath of God for the sake of those sinners who would put their faith in him. And then in chapter 4, Paul makes clear that this, this mechanism called justification by faith is not new to those living after our Lord in the first century, but dates all the way back to sinners who were saved, such as Abraham, who is a model, whose faith we share because he believed God. And Genesis 15 says it was counted to him as righteousness. And the reason that belief is, is emphasized so much in this in this trek of scripture and through many other passages, is because if our justification were to depend on something else, if we were to render it somehow with our own doings, we would deserve credit for the outcome. 
If the outcome is salvation and we contribute to it in any way, then the thing is not built on grace. It's built on works and the glory is to be shared. But that is not the salvation that we are here to celebrate and commend to anyone who does not have it. Because our salvation in Christ Jesus is through faith and it's by grace. So like Abraham, who believed God to be able to do more than Abraham could ever imagine, and it was counted to him as righteousness, so it is for us today. When we believe God to be able to do more than we could ever deserve, namely, to trade us our sins for the righteousness of his Son, To credit to us Christ's perfection. To dress us in the robe of his moral perfection. And to count us worthy being in him. This is what we're here to celebrate. That's what we mean when we say we have been justified by faith. God looks at us, and because we are in Christ, we have believed God for his promises, kept through Christ. He declares in the courtroom of heaven, this one is not guilty. That's justification by faith. That's the valley that we'll peer into. Now, as Paul has made this argument very clear in chapters 1 through 4, in chapters 5, he's going to turn towards seeing some of the features and effects, fruits and benefits of justification. And those are really the features that we want to key in on in our time together. So at Yosemite Valley, when you stand at Inspiration Point, you see Bridal Falls off to your right. You see El Capitan off to your left. You see Half Dome towards the back of the valley. Today, we're all going to stand on Inspiration Point of the scriptures looking through the valley called justification by faith and Lord willing be encouraged by some of the features which Paul makes known to us in Romans chapter 5. So if you'll turn your attention there, we'll read our passage and then take each one of these features one by one. He begins in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is God's word. Amen. The first feature of justification by faith that we want to take note of is peace. Peace with God. I wonder if you've ever been in a relationship before where there's discord. Maybe you've caused it. Maybe because of some offense 
you've been put at odds with another person. You've had to go with them and ask for their forgiveness. You consider now how wonderful it is to sense that you have been given that forgiveness and the relationship reconciled. The passage that we're looking at says that because we are justified, we have peace with God. This is a relational peace. He looks at us and whereas our relationship or our, uh, the way in which we stood before him was previously marked by hostility because of our rebellion, justified people have peace with God. So let's first consider what this means in, what this means in its nature. First, we want to see that this is a reference to something good, not just the absence of something bad. So let's, let's consider the difference here. It's one thing to say it's not raining outside. It's another thing to say it's a beautiful sunny day. Do you, under, you understand the difference? One is saying something not bad, although you might enjoy a rainy day. The other is to say something very good. When we think of peace here, I want you to have in mind what a Hebrew might think of, which is prosperity, well-being, joy, happiness. The type of peace which we have with God is like this. The prophets in the Old Testament made it clear that, that peace would be a marker of the Messianic age, that the Messiah would bring a type of shalom that would be pervasive for the people of God who are found in that promise Because we have been justified by God, we have this peace. We are secured in our relationship with God by way of it. As sure as Christ is a sufficient sinless sacrifice, so sure is the peace that we have with God through him. Now, peace applied, if that's its nature. I want you to understand That if you are justified with God, this is the peace that you have right now. Not just the peace which you wait for in heaven. It is the pilgrim's possession which he carries with him or her all their days on earth. When you are justified, though you wait for a heaven which shall certainly come, Many of its benefits are granted to you now while you pilgrim in that direction. Right now, God is at peace with you if you are in Christ. So when you, when you fail, when you, when you fall, when you struggle, when you doubt, when you're given to unbelief, the scriptures say that God is at peace with you. That the declaration that went out at the time of your coming to know him is good for the whole of your life. It is the possession of the pilgrim. Peace with God. Number two, this peace does not depend on your ability to sustain it. Have you ever feared that because of sin or unbelief, That you lost this peace with God? Have you ever began to doubt because of a spiritually dry season that maybe God is at odds with you? 
As sure as Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to take your sin, so sure is the benefit of your being found in Christ, peace with God. It is yours. As you came into it through belief, I want to encourage you, Christian, keep believing. Keep trusting in the God who gives peace to you through Jesus Christ. The second feature that we want to see in verse 2, Paul writes, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is the second feature. There's two things we want to see here. First, I would like to ask you if you were to look back over the life that you've lived, if you recall the time where you came to know Christ Jesus. There's a bit here that kind of harkens back to that day when you were introduced. And I want to show that to you in that, in that word obtained access. I'm reading out of the ESV. Some of you might have other translations that use the term introduction. And that's what it's getting at here. Namely, that we were at a time introduced to a grace that came to us through Christ Jesus. We, we were brought into it. We weren't born that way. We were born in a state of rebellion, but we were introduced to God and found in his favor through the power of the gospel. So we look back and we realize that Christ is the agent who made this introduction. We can march into heaven boldly and stand before a throne of grace because Christ Jesus has given us access to that. There was a point in time where through faith we were justified and we were brought in for the first time. The Christian's prerogative since that time is to go back again and again and again to enjoy the benefits of being found in God's favor. We obtained access through Christ who made introduction for us. But it's not just grace which we had in the past, it's grace which we have today. And you can see that in the present tense of the phrase, in which we stand. We stand on this grace. This grace which has established the way for us, made clear in Christ. It is the grace which we hold on to to this day. We stand in it. We rely upon it. It is the bedrock of our souls. That's, that's the beautiful uh, characteristic of the church for over 2,000 years. It's a church that believes God and continues to believe God and stands in his grace until his promises are brought to pass. You must continue in the grace which was accessed through faith until these promises come to pass. We stand in this. It is our foundation. Here I want to just make a call to you who maybe do not consider yourselves a Christian. I want you to hear and consider what God has done through Christ for any who should repent of their sins and believe on him. As it was for Abraham who was counted righteous, as it is for everyone today who has done so, so it would be for you. If you would trust Christ, who lived like you can't live, who died like you should have died and I should have died, and rose again in victory to give life to those who believe. 
So you should do today. You should repent and believe. And these promises would be yours. They're guaranteed to you because Christ has laid up all that is necessary to give them to you. So I encourage you today, if you don't know what it would be like to do that, talk with somebody in the rows, the person who brought you. Talk with Pastor Rod. Speak with me after the service. I would love to have that conversation with you. Trust in Christ today and begin your stand on the grace of God. For those of you who have done this, just to underline for you the sweetness of the grace in which you stand from the point in which you found it to today, I have a quote for you from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, The point wherein faith comes into contact with pardon is when faith believes that the Son of God did come and stand in the sinner's stead. And when faith accepts that substitution as a glorious boon of grace and rests in it and says, Now I see how God is just and smites Christ in my stead, seeing he condemned me before I personally sinned because of Adam's sin, I see how he can absolve me, though I have no righteousness, because of Christ's righteousness. In another did I fall, and in another do I rise. By one Adam I was destroyed. By another Adam I am restored. I see it. I leap for joy as I see it, and I accept it as from the Lord my God. In one Adam did I fall, in another do I rise. Rise to what? Rise to stand on grace. Pilgrim and brother Christian, sister Christian, you are going to heaven to worship the Lord Almighty forevermore. Your entrance into that place is sure because Christ is there and his blood is being pled for you every moment of every eternal day. Stand in the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus and do not fall back from it. The third thing which we want to see comes to us in the end of verse 2 where Paul says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is a future hope that he's considering. Now, at first, you might say, the glory of God is all around us. I went to Yosemite Valley, and I, I saw glory there on the car ride up the highway today from Washington, D.C. to be with you. I was listening to music over the, uh, over the uh, system in my car, and, and I was glorying in God for the truths that, that we were singing about in that particular uh, album. I, I, I glory in God when I taste something good. I don't know what your favorite foods are. I, I, I generally like meat. I'm a carnivore. I, I try to, I try to uh, uh, put my diet through a, a good intake of meat every day. And if you, if you eat something that you like, you taste the, the flavor in your mouth, understand that even in such a small gift as that, the glory of God is being made known because he made that. He put all of that together and it's worth celebrating. The glory of God is all around us. It shines in creation. It shines in the lives in which we live. His mercies are new for us. We get to live in a world that, 
that we don't make, nor do we sustain, nor can we direct towards its final end. The glory of God is all around. And yet Paul here says we hope in a future glory which will be revealed. I think the glory that he's getting at is the glory which is going to be pervasive in the new creation. Scriptures say we will see him and we will be transformed. We will be restored to the glory that Adam lost and even yet a greater glory than that. For whatever the Garden of Eden was like, we're plotting towards a new garden. Christian has a future hope, not just a present one. Future hope that will involve God setting all things at right. Paul even says later in this particular book that the creation, it groans with birth pains waiting for that day to come to pass. There's a future hope which we have in the coming glory of God. I would just stop right there and say, there are many who will mock you for having such a hope as this. There are many who will hear you proclaim a coming hope such as this one in the glory of God, which will be pervasive in all of the world. And they will laugh at you and say, that's a myth or a fairy tale. This book is good. And its promises are true. You can count on it. These things are going to come to pass. There will be a time where whether we alive because of the Lord's tarry or through death, he will take us home where we will see that the one in whom we have put our confidence in, he brings that which he promised us to pass. So we hope in it. Paul says it's sure we put our confidence that these things are going to come to pass. Now, the next feature that we want to look at that pertains to our justification, I'm not going to lie to you, it's a bit strange. In fact, when I first read it, I thought surely I had a bad translation or maybe it was a misprint. Look at verse 3. It says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, don't go any further. You might be supplying Paul immediately with words that would make this less embarrassing or confusing. You might say... We hope or rejoice in hope, the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in spite of our sufferings. That sounds a little better. Or we rejoice in the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice uh, in, in sufferings that, that pertain to uh, that which other people have to experience. We rejoice that other people having, are having a hard time. No, he says we rejoice in our sufferings. Why in the world would he say that? Now, just to bring this home, I don't know what your position is or where you are in this life. But I'm assuming that if you've lived long enough, you have suffered. And maybe you're suffering now. Maybe you're suffering with age. Maybe you're suffering with loss. Maybe you're suffering with health. Maybe you're suffering under persecution. Maybe you're, su- maybe you're suffering emotionally. Maybe you're suffering mentally. 
And God's word says not only do we hope that there is going to be a coming pervasive glory, but we rejoice right now in our sufferings. Why would we boast or rejoice in our sufferings? That's the question we want to ask. And I have two answers for you. First, suffering is the path to glory. Suffering is the path to glory. Christ suffered. And Christ is glorified. We suffer and we will be glorified. Romans 8, 17, following a glorious stretch of text, Paul writes, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are people who live between two ages. The age that is now, that is dominated by the evil one and by sin, that's broken under the weight of it. And the age that is to come, that we've been transferred into through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Until all these things come to pass, we understand that our plot as pilgrims in the world is to suffer for the glory of God. So we rejoice in suffering because it is that pathway by which we obtain all of this glory. One commentator wrote something I thought was just very apt on this point. He writes, It hence appears that the Lord tries us by adversities for this end, that our salvation may thereby be gradually advanced. Those evils then cannot render us miserable, which do in a manner promote our happiness. Think about that. Think about that as I read it one more time. Those evils, then, that cannot render us miserable. Sufferings that cannot render us miserable. Because they do, in a manner, promote our happiness. And thus is proved what he had said. That the godly have reasons for glorifying God in the midst of their afflictions. Christian, God is doing something in your sufferings, and they will come to an end. As of now, they're not worth comparing to the eternal glory which God has for you in Christ Jesus. And in the meantime, he has laid out a pathway through suffering, his faithfulness to you in it, where he will take you to glory. So we can suffer well. We can rejoice in suffering. Number two, suffering produces maturity. I just got out of a pastoral internship at Capitol Hill. I was pretty uh, regular in my exercising and working out prior to that internship. But in the internship, it felt like all I did was drink coffee, read, and write papers. So my wife would laugh at me every once in a while and say, you should really be getting back in the gym or you need to exercise or are you ever going to get out of your office chair? And after I got out of the uh, internship, I, I kind of had a little bit of a fear of the gym. I don't know if you've ever been in this position where after you've been out of it for a while, the weights just look a little heavier and the pain seems a little less enjoyable. And you're anticipating the soreness that you'll certainly feel in your legs, which may prevent you from being able to get up and down the stairs the following day. I didn't want to go back, but I understand that when you exercise, what is essentially happening is you're, you're putting micro tears into 
the muscle fibers, and, and then over time they're growing up. They're getting bigger and stronger. More exercise normally leads to more strength. Well, in this, in this way, I want you to see that suffering produces maturity. Through suffering, we grow and are made more like Christ. This isn't an isolated paradigm in the New Testament at all. James does something very similar, as well does Peter, which probably indicates that early Christians who suffered greatly for their faith would regularly encourage each other by recognizing that in the middle of suffering, they were being built up to look more like Christ. This is the way Paul describes it happening in verses 3 and 4. He says not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. When you suffer and yet continue to stand in the grace of God made clear to you through Jesus Christ, you are made or you gain, rather, more stamina. You're encouraged that whatever season of trial you're going through, that it did not result in the loss of your faith. You see through suffering that the promises which you once believed that were made to you by God are good to you even now in the midst of terrible trials. In this way, your character is proven, it's tested, and on the other side, it's shown to be good. I love to sail. I love being on the ocean. I've been in a couple storms. The first one I was ever in, thank God I had a captain with me, and he was overseeing the maintenance of the vessel. I was pretty sure we were going to die. I don't know that we actually were. It felt that way to me. I remember being in the cabin of that boat while we were going up and down and up and down. And I was waiting for the death angel to call me home or, or for me to you know, meet my maker. And, and, and the only assurance that I had was that that captain, he was at the wheel. And he had been there before. I remember asking him over and over and over again as this was a long storm. Have you seen anything like this before? Have you ever been through this before? Can you, can you handle this? Are we in trouble? Is this normal? Should the boat be making these noises? Has anyone ever interacted with an ocean that is doing what this one is doing? The reason we had confidence in him is because he had been there before. He had gone through those conditions. He knew that boat and was certain we would make it out on the other side. Christian, as you suffer, as you're tested, and your faith remains true, and it only grows in strength, not only can you be encouraged, but other Christians around you will also be encouraged. When you suffer well, you encourage younger Christians. You encourage Christians who maybe are not as far along in their walk with Christ as you are. You may even encourage older Christians. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces tested character, and tested character produces hope. If that one didn't knock me down because God's promises are true, this next one won't either. I can hope in the glory which is coming, and I can hope even in the sufferings which I now go through. 
How can we know that these things are true? And we arrive at Paul's final verse, which we'll be examining today. Verse 5, he says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The picture we have here of the Holy Spirit communicating God's love, pouring it out into our hearts, it's like, it's like a rain cloud forming over a really barren land that never receives water. And then all of a sudden, heaven just opening up in a torrential downpour, finding that barren land. So it is in our hearts because the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. His mission is to apply in our lives what Christ has accomplished on the cross. There is an inner supernatural communication from heaven for all believers that says you are loved by God. And it's true through Christ Jesus. This isn't an isolated experience for the spiritually elite. This isn't just this way for those who have put their time in. This is normative for all Christians. There isn't a Christian who has not received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit communicates God's love to all Christians. Now, there are ordinary means by which we are oftentimes encountering and realizing this regular communication which is happening from the Holy Spirit to us, maybe when we're reading his word. In the mornings, you may be accustomed to feeding on his word, and in that time, you're able to maybe in greater ways than other times experience or come to know that God loves you. You feast on his word, and the Holy Spirit illumines it, and in that illumination, you find yourself praising him because you are loved. Maybe it's in prayer. I find one of the one of the ways that I oftentimes am made further aware that the Holy Spirit is communicating these things to me is when I go to church. When I go to church and I'm with God's people, I'm encouraged to keep going, to keep running, to keep standing. And then I get into Monday and I can start to become distracted. Maybe I grow weary. Maybe I become frustrated. Maybe I'm not rejoicing in my sufferings as I should be. But Lord's Day is coming. And when I return, I'm once again encouraged to keep going. And over time, I think that period, that repetitivity, it, it builds up the type of endurance that we're looking for. I think the communion of saints in local churches are a means by which God confirms through the testimony of the Holy Spirit that he loves us. For whichever ways... This is brought to your awareness. I want you to understand that it's normative. The Holy Spirit resides in each believer and communicates a normative message to them, namely that they are loved by God, that he loves them. For those of you who listen to Paul write things like, Rejoice in your sufferings. And you're still thinking, I don't know how in the world that could be a possibility. I wonder if when you submit yourself to his word and in prayer, if you aren't encouraged as the Holy Spirit illumines its effective 
truth in the eyes of your heart if you're not encouraged to know that God loves you, that he's poured that love out for you in Christ Jesus. It might wane in seasons of doubt, and it might grow in seasons of renewal, but the truth is, is that God has provided this for you at all times so that you would know and that you would hold fast to that which he has done. So I would just ask you a few things. How are you handling your suffering? Are you using it as a reason to grumble? Are you tempted to lose heart? Does your faith feel weak and frail? Do you feel angry because God has put you in this situation? Are you frustrated? The Bible would call you to another response. God would have you rejoice because he's doing something. It's going somewhere. It will reach the end which he has determined and that end is your good. Being in the sufferer's chair, being the one who has to go through tribulation, it oftentimes not only puts you in a position to mature, but it puts you within the realm where you can even, to a greater degree, experience the love of God as he sustains you. So I want to encourage you now, rejoice in your suffering. Be built up by the good things which God has done for you, a justified sinner. He's made peace with you. He's given you grace. He causes you to be hopeful in the future. He makes you hopeful even now because he's morally transforming you, making you into the image of his son. He pours his love out to you by the Holy Spirit who lives within. And he will keep you until the end. He will bring you home. The final hymn that we're going to sing this morning is He Will Hold Me Fast. Rod sent this, uh, this hymn over to me with the order of service a while back, and I hadn't quite looked at it when I was preparing this message. I thought about rejoicing and suffering and some of the trials that we can experience in applying such an imperative as that. And I was thinking to myself how good it would be following that type of instruction from God's word to conclude by singing, he will hold me fast. And then I opened up Rod's email and there it was. I wonder if you'd be encouraged by these words. And I read them to you now in hopes that when we sing them together, having meditated on them in advance, we might be even more fortified by them. The writer writes, When I fear that my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. 
Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Put your hope in the God who makes these things true for you through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we glory in you because you have done amazing things for us in Christ. We are found in the waterfall that is your paternal love for us. We know it to be so. The Holy Spirit confirms it. We've placed our faith in Christ and we know he will never give way. He is our surety and our salvation. We praise you for him. I pray for this congregation and ask, Lord God, that you might build them up in this faith. May they be caused in a very fortified manner to stand in the grace which they first found when they believed. May their confidence only grow until you return. May this congregation be found faithful with the, with the things that they have been made to steward. We praise you, Lord God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.